You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I want to read before we begin verses 1 through 11, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's bow in prayer together before we begin. Our Father, it is to your word that we now turn. We believe that in your word you are revealed. It is your word that you use to sanctify us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to rebuke us, to inform us. And we know that when your word is rightly preached, that your voice is rightly heard. And so as your people, we come now with great expectation and pray that you would be our teacher today through this text of Scripture, that we might be encouraged and that we might be sanctified according to your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I learned this last week a very, very important lesson. A very important lesson that I learned was that you never publicly make a challenge to a talented musician because they will show you up. Last week in Philippians chapter 2, I made the challenge or the offer. Somebody, it would be nice if somebody were to write a song from Philippians chapter 2 that would express all of the theological implications of it and express all of the, the spectrum of doctrine that's contained in that wonderful passage in verses 6 through 11. And uh, I just kind of said to Mel, you have it ready next week, and you sing it, and I'll preach it. You remember that? Well, Monday night, we got together for my son's birthday party and to watch Monday night football, and he already had it done. <laughs> and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the words to this, and then Mel is going to sing this for our closing song today. And we, we recorded it this morning before anybody showed up, and we're, we passed it out to all of the instrumentalists this morning so that they can work on it and learn it. And then hopefully within the next couple weeks, before we're done with Philippians chapter 2, we'll be able to sing it together as a congregation. So listen to the words. Verse 1, this, it's titled, You Came to This World. You came to this world to save us in the form of God and a man. You were exalted in heaven, a servant on earth you became. You set a perfect example of how you want us to be. And then this is the chorus. God exalted you to the highest place. You've been given a name over every name a name that makes our knees to bend and the mouth of every being claim that you are Lord and your Father is glorified. Verse 2, You made yourself less than nothing, the nature of man and of God, 
Please show me how I can follow the obedient steps you trod, the glory of God you show us through the cross of humility. And then the chorus, God exalted you to the highest place. You've been given a name over every name, a name that makes our knees to bend and the mouth of every being claim that you are Lord and your Father is glorified. Isn't that good? That was really good. I don't mean to sound surprised, but I'm surprised that you could come up with something that good that quick. Uh, that is not the typical Jesus is my boyfriend, give him a world type of slop that is served up for worship every Sunday in most evangelical churches. That, that whole song, and, and Mel may add verses to it, or he may sort of tweak the words as we go through this passage, but that song really expresses the essence of what is at the heart of Philippians chapter 2. The glory of God and Christ's exaltation is there. The humility, the cross is there. What it cost Him, the nature of God, the nature of man, the one who is the God-man, all of that's contained in there because all of that is contained in Philippians chapter 2. So you should have your Bibles open there and we're going to be looking at the next portion of Philippians chapter 2. I told you last week this is a, a hymnal statement, kind of a creedal statement. In the early church they would take a lot of doctrinal content and they would sort of crystallize it into a stanza form like we have in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have one here in Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul takes a creedal statement or a stanza, kind of a hymn of the early church, and he brings it and he inserts it into Philippians chapter 2, uses it, and, and most scholars believe that he probably tweaked the words or the order of it a little bit to sort of make it his own and to apply it to our lives. Now, the Apostle Paul knows that it's not enough just to mentally give assent to true statements, is it? It's not enough simply to have in your mind that which is true or to affirm with your mouth that which is true. The Apostle Paul doesn't stop with just giving us true statements about Christ. Instead, he shows us the practical lifestyle implications of such wonderful theology. That is why he says, you are to have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And then in verses 6 through 11, he describes that mindset. And so rather than just giving us doctrine, the Apostle Paul shows us the duties that are incumbent upon us because these wonderful things are true. Because this is who Christ is, and since this is what Christ has done, this is who you are to be, and this is what you are to do. So we have the wonderful doctrine, and we also have all of the duties that are incumbent upon us as Christians to follow that example. So we begin verse 6, and we saw last week that Christ was as exalted and high up as He could possibly be. Was He not? He existed in the form of God. By the time we get to the end of verse 7, we have gone from Christ being as high up and exalted as He could possibly be to being as low and humiliated as He could possibly be from heaven to earth, and not just to earth, but to a cross, the most humiliating and degrading form of death that man has ever invented. But then by the time we get to verse 11, He has gone from the cross to being back as exalted and high up as he could possibly be again. You see the biblical pattern? You humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what? He lifts you up. That's where that teaching comes from. That's what Christ did. He humbled himself and took upon himself humanity. He became a man. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. And then God has highly exalted him. That's the work of God. We humble ourselves and God lifts us up at his proper time. So we left last week off with the, the phrase, he existed in the form of God. And we saw, do you remember the four illustrations that I gave you? That form has nothing to do with a, a general shape or appearance like a dog, the shape of a dog in a cloud. Form is not a, 
a statue or an accurate sketch like George Washington on the front of a dollar bill or a bronze statue of an individual. By form, the Apostle Paul is not talking about a, an outline or a shadow that is cast by an original, but he uses a word that could not be misunderstood by anybody in, the, in that day and shouldn't be by us. A word that means the outward, something that strikes the senses, an outward manifestation of an inward reality. Form in the sense of a, a hammer wrapped in tissue paper. That's the type of form the Apostle Paul is talking about. It is that which strikes our senses, which accurately represents what indeed it actually is. And if Christ were not God, the Apostle Paul would have never said he existed in the morphe of God. You only use the term morphe of God to describe something that exists as God. So the Apostle Paul is as clear as he can possibly be. And he says that Christ existed in the form of God. That is the same thing as saying he existed as God. Now, to the chagrin of some of you and to the, to the excitement of others, we're only going to cover the end of verse 6 today. He did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped. And next week we'll look at what it means that he emptied himself. We're taking the time because, listen, there's so much that comes up in the rest of this passage and we have to make sure we understand verse 6 because we get that in our minds clear as to what the Apostle Paul is saying because that's going to govern all of the other things that come up for the rest of this. What does it mean that he emptied himself? So if we don't get verse 6 nailed down, then by the time we start with the rest of it, we're going to be on a slippery slope. We're going to be sliding all over the place. We're going to have all of these ideas in our mind about what being emptied means and what the appearance of man means and what the form of God means. So we want to make sure that we get our, all of our theological ducks in a row with verse 6. So we're jumping into some really deep, heady stuff. Stick with us. Try and stay awake. I'll do my best to keep you awake. Let's get into it. Verse 6, chapter 2. He existed in the form of God, and he did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now you'll notice if you have the King James and the New King James sitting in your lap that it says what? He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And you're going to see in a moment why the King James and the New King James use the term robbery, and while the more modern translations use the term grasped. He did not regard, he did not look at his equality with God as something that was to be grasped or held onto or seized. Let's just stop for a second. I want you to notice, first of all, how the Apostle Paul begins in this step of condescension, because we're going from him existing in the form of God, as high up and exalted as he could be, in the form of God, the very first step down, do you notice, in the end of verse 6, is a mental humility. He hasn't done anything yet. It's still in verse 6, he's existing in the form of God. But the Apostle Paul tells us in his mind how Paul can, how the Lord Jesus thought of his equality with God, thought of his form of God. It's a mental humility. It begins in the mind. And listen, this is one of the values of the book of Philippians. In the Gospels, we get all about the Lord Jesus in his life, in his ministry, in his birth, in his death, in his resurrection, his ascension, his teaching, his deeds, the things he said, the miracles that he did. We get all of that in the Gospels. But you know, there's something about the Lord Jesus that the Gospels don't tell us much about. The Gospels do not tell us much about what He was before He came to earth. The Gospels don't tell us a lot about the mind of Christ. In the Gospels, we see the deeds of Christ. We see the works of Christ. We see things about His life. But the inestimable value of the book of Philippians is that in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul takes us back before the Virgin, before time, before Bethlehem, before Augustus, before all of the Gospels, all the way back into eternity past. 
And not only that, but the Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse at the mentality of the second person of the Godhead, the mindset, the attitude, and the thinking in eternity past. That's something we don't get in the Gospels. But we get it in Philippians. And not only do we get that in Philippians, because this is the central text of the whole book, but we also get four chapters that tell us what that means for us living out the mind of Christ. Not just what the mind of Christ is, that it is a humbling and a mental humility, but what the mind of Christ means for my day-to-day walk, how I treat my wife, how I treat my brother and sister in Christ, how I look at other people, how I conduct myself with, with you and how you conduct yourself with me. That's where the book of Philippians fleshes out what the mind of Christ is. So what is the mind of Christ? He did not regard his equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That's a mental humility. Now this was something that impacted Paul tremendously, and he modeled this in his life. And went through the book of Acts. You saw how the Apostle Paul walked and lived out this mind of Christ. He says in the book of Romans that Christ, let me read it to you, the book of Romans chapter 15 verse 3, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for not even Christ pleased himself. You know, who's the example? Each of us is to look out for his own neighbor, Paul says in Romans 15, because not even Christ pleased himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle says, I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. I don't seek my own glory, my own profit, my own benefit, the apostle Paul says, but I seek the benefit of others, to live for others. And then he says, this is the example that I've given to you, so you imitate me just as I imitate Christ. What was it that Paul was imitating of the Lord Jesus Christ? His selflessness, his humility of mind, his regard for others as more important than themselves. That impacted the Apostle Paul. You understand that humility of any kind of humility begins right up here. You can be you can leave here this morning and go clean the bathrooms of the church or the school without being humble. You might look humble. What you do might look humble. But humility begins where? It begins up here in not thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think. That's where humility begins. That's why the Apostle Paul begins with that. He didn't regard, he did not consider his equality with God as something to be held on to at all costs. It was how did the Lord Jesus think of his form of God and existing as God and being in the form of God with all of the glory and all of the conveniences and all of the comforts that that came with. How did he view that? How did he regard that? It was with humility of mind. It was how he thought of himself. It was how he thought of us. It was that lowliness of mind. We have a saying around our house with our kids. You control what you think about. You control what you think about. We tell our kids that all the time. Every once in a while we'll see something on TV and it can be something innocent. It can be on a cartoon. It can be on Gilligan's Island. Something that you wouldn't think is scary at all, but apparently is too scary to go to bed after watching it. And so they stay up all night. One time we watched one of the old Star Trek episodes, the old ones with Captain Kirk, and it was the one where they had all the little funny, uh, fuzzy uh, tribbles. That's it. I was going to say truffles, but that's a dessert. All of the little tribbles, the little tribbles, little furry things that multiply themselves all over the ship. Innocent, cute, lovable, fun, nothing scary. Kids couldn't go to sleep after watching that. Why? I can't think of anything but tribbles. All they could think about was the tribbles. And these were... I guess horrifying animals to them at the time. This was a couple years ago. And so we would go into their room we'd tell them, you control what you think about. They couldn't get to sleep because they said, I can't stop thinking about the tribbles. You control what you think about. You can go to sleep 
And you can control what you think about. But friends, not only do you control what you think about, but you control how you think about it. You see, lust is a sin not just when it enters into our minds, but when we dwell on it, when we intentionally purpose to think about it. Because we control what we think. And not only do we control what we think, we control how we think about it. So it's not necessarily wrong to think about yourself, but it's wrong to think about yourself in a way that is at this expense of others. How do you think about yourself? You control that. How do you view yourself? The position that God has given you, the responsibilities that God has given you, the authority that God has given you, all of the physical blessings that God has given to you, how do you view those things in your own mind? That's the question you have to answer. When it came to the Lord Jesus, it was humility of mind. He did not regard His interests above the interests of others. If He had, we would all still be lost. If anybody in all of the universe deserved and had a right to demand His own way, it was the Lord Jesus. And He didn't. It's the whole point of Philippians chapter 2. He could demand worship. He could demand obedience. He could demand that other people consider Him. He could demand that that somebody else accomplished the work of redemption, but He didn't. Instead, He took it upon Himself and He didn't regard His own interest above ours. So how did He regard His equality with God? With lowliness of mind. I want you to notice the phrase, equality of God. Equality with God. The word equality is from the Greek word isos, I-S-O-S. We have English words that we sort of use that Greek in like isosceles triangle. An isosceles triangle is a triangle with what? Two equal sides. An, an isomer is, a, is chemicals that have different chemical properties, but they are equal in atomic weight. They have some things that are different, but they are equal in substance. That's what the word here, equal, means. And Paul actually puts it in the plural. In other words, the Apostle Paul is not talking about one thing in which Christ was equal with God. He's talking about a multitude of things. Probably all the attributes of God that you and I can fathom. All of His nature, all of His substance. How was He equal with God? Was He equal with God just in function? Just in position? Just in honor? Just in power? Just that He received with the Father the worship of angels? Or in what way was Jesus Christ equal with God? Well, the Apostle Paul has already given us a hint by using the phrase, the form of God. He existed in the morphe of God because He was, in essence, everything that God was. So when the Apostle Paul says that Christ existed in the form of God and that He was equal with God, the Apostle Paul is saying not that He was equal in one way, but that He was equal in every way with God. Simply put, it's this. Anything that you can affirm of God you can also affirm of Christ. Anything you can affirm of God, you can also affirm of Jesus Christ. Say, God is omnipotent. So is Christ. He is omniscient. So is Christ. He is omnipresent. So is Christ. He is all wise. So is Christ. He is all good. So is Christ. He's holy. Yes. Just. Yes. Loving. Just. Yes. Kind. Yes. All of that. Anything you can say of God, you can affirm of Jesus Christ. Because He is equal to God. And not just equal in one little element or one little aspect, but equal in every respect. Now why is this important? Why is this important? You know why it's important? Because friends, the identity of Jesus Christ is the heart of the Gospel. You can be right about baptism, about end times, about a thousand things, 
But if you are wrong on the doctrine of who God is, you are wrong enough to lose your soul for all of eternity. Because every time you create a God after your own liking, in your own mind, you have created an idol. And then every time you pray to Him, you pray to an idol. And every time you worship Him, you worship an idol. And every time you sing to Him, you sing to an idol. You have to have who God is right. Otherwise, it's idolatry. And no idolater will inherit the kingdom of God. So you have to be absolutely right about who God is and about who Jesus Christ is. And if Jesus Christ is not God, friends, there is no salvation for you. None whatsoever. Because no angel could die for your sin. No mere man could die for your sin. No exalted man could die for your sin. And no exalted created being could die for your sin. Only God could die for your sin. And if Jesus Christ is not God, then the death on the cross was not an atonement. It may be a good example. It may be a nice moral thing. It might be a good expression of friendship. It might be a thousand other things, but it's not a payment for sin. Because the only being who could pay the price for sin, because sin was infinite, was an infinite being. And the only infinite being is the person of God. That is why God had to become man and as God, die on the cross. As Paul says in Acts chapter 20, God purchased the church with His own blood. It was the blood of God that was shed on the cross. It was God's blood. God became a man. That's the heart of the Gospel. You see, what damns Mormons is not the fact that they elevate another book above the Bible. That's serious, bad heresy. But that's not what damns them. You know what damns them? They have a Jesus that never existed. They have a Jesus who is the figment of their own imagination. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. They have a wrong Jesus. You can put all of the faith in the world in the wrong Jesus and you're still going to be lost. You know what damns a Jehovah's Witness? What damns a Jehovah's Witness is not a few wrong prophecies in the early 1900s. What damns a Jehovah's Witness is that they have a Jesus who never existed. He's not the created being. He's not Michael the archangel become flesh and now evaporated up into a spirit creature. He's not that at all. So since the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the Christian scientists and the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Muslims, they all have a wrong Jesus. It doesn't matter how much faith they place in Him, they're still lost. Why? Because the person that they're trusting to save them can't save them. He doesn't exist. A lot of times people will say to you, well, I, I don't, my God would never do that. My God is not that way. And you just respond by saying, you're right. Your God isn't that way. Your God couldn't be that way because He doesn't exist. He's a figment of your own imagination. You created Him. You violated the second commandment by creating a God after your own image. One that you're comfortable with. One you can bow down to and worship every morning when you look in the mirror. That's who your God is. It's just an expression of your own heart and your own self. That's what damns them. We have to get the nature of who God is right. So if your Jesus is not God in human flesh, you're trusting the wrong person to save you from your sin. That's the heart, the very heart of the Gospel is who is that one who walked to this earth and died on a cross. Only God could pay the penalty for sin. Second reason why this is so important, you notice verse 7, the first three words, he emptied himself. Those three words will launch us off into a Zulu of theological issues and controversy. All Friends, if you don't have in verse 6 nailed down that Jesus Christ is God, the minute you step into verse 7, you're stepping on a greasy banana peel and you're going to slide right off into heresy. So you have to nail down who Jesus Christ is before you can understand what Paul means when he says that he emptied himself. So that's why it's important. Now what kind of equality is the Apostle Paul talking about? Is it equality just in stature or name? 
Is it just that God has taken a lower, created, inferior being and elevated him up to the position of himself to receive worship together? Is this equality one of just function or one of just name? Or is it just an equal honor? What kind of equality is Paul talking about? Now, my wife and I are equal in many ways. We're equal in many ways. We're both United States citizens. We both can work. We both pay taxes. We both legally have an equal share in our marriage. We are equal in a lot of ways. In the eyes of the law, ontologically, we are equal, but we're radically different in other ways. She's not equal in strength to me. I'm not equal in emotion to her, or compassion, I should say. That's a better way of putting it. I don't have any emotion, but I'm not equal in in compassion to her. We're unequal in a lot of ways. She's far more of some things than, than I am. And I'm far more of other things than she is. I'm equal to the other elders of this church. We have equality of of responsibility, equality of authority, equality of function and responsibility before God, And but our roles are slightly different, and we don't share the same substance. We're not the same person. We're not the same being. We don't have the same essence. We're different people. So what type of equality is the Apostle Paul talking about? Is he saying that Jesus Christ was merely equal with God in one way or two ways? Do you notice in the text that the Apostle Paul does not qualify it at all? Do you notice that? Do you notice that he doesn't qualify it and say he was his equality with God was in this way or in that way? Because if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Christian scientist and you say, do you believe that Christ was equal to God? They may look at this text, and depending on what their theological perspective is, they look at the text and they say, well, yeah, we believe he's equal to God, but, but, there's always a but, And then they qualify it and explain it. The Apostle Paul doesn't do that. No qualifications, no explanations, because the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that He, that is Jesus Christ, is the exact representation of the nature of God. Everything that we can affirm of God, we can affirm of Jesus Christ. Because in Him, Colossians 2 verse 9 says, dwells all the fullness of God in bodily form. You want to know what God's nature looks like? You can look to Jesus Christ. Because that is the purest, the greatest, the most infinite expression of who God is that we could have. He is God in human flesh. That's what God would look like if He came and took upon Himself flesh. Because He did. So He's the exact representation of His nature. This introduces us to the doctrine of the Trinity. You say, man, this is like five weeks of Bible school in one Sunday morning, I know. This introduces us to the doctrine of the Trinity, that we worship a God who exists eternally as three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, co-eternal, co-substantial. That means that they share eternity, they share their substance and their nature, but they are distinct in three persons. The Father is not the Son and He's not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father and He's not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And they have always existed in that form as a Trinity in unity. So that anything we can say about Jesus concerning His nature, His being, His essence can also be affirmed of the Father and the Spirit. But they are not the same persons. They are different persons. And this is a mystery. But friends, even though you and I can't understand it, we must believe it because Scripture teaches it. And Scripture teaches it unequivocally. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a problem for us. You understand that? It's a solution. Doctrine of the Trinity is not a problem. It's not something we have to explain. It's actually something that explains a whole lot of other things. It's a solution. You know what it solves? It solves this. We're told in Scripture that there is one God. Only one God. 
And we're told in Scripture that three persons are called God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is called God, the Son is called God, and the Holy Spirit is called God. The doctrine of the Trinity explains how those things are true. We have one God who eternally exists in three separate persons. Now something else you need to keep in your mind, and then we'll move on to the next couple words, and here it is. The Son of God has always been the Son of God. There was never a time when He was not the Son. He did not become the Son at the Incarnation. He did not become the Son in Mary's womb. He did not become the Son when the Spirit descended upon Him. He always was the Son. He always existed in relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit as the Son. Even back in Psalm 2, at the end of the psalm, the psalmist writes, Do homage to the Son so that He not become angry with you. And you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. He is the Son and He has always existed as the Son of God. You go back before the nativity, before creation, before ages past, and you know who you find? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when did Jesus become the Son of God? What's the answer to that? Never. Never became the Son of God. He always has been. That's like asking, when did God become God? Never became God. He always has been God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. So he did not regard, that is his mental humbling, he did not regard his equality, which he had, as something to be grasped. The King James Version has, he did not regard, he did not consider it robbery to be equal to God. Something to be grasped, or is it robbery? The word, harpogmos, is the word in the Greek, and it literally means something uh, seized, (laughs) I almost said sneezed, something seized or snatched by force. Something that is seized or snatched. Something taken by force. Now it can be used in two ways. It can be used actively to speak of the act of snatching or seizing something and taking it by force. If something didn't belong to me, I might snatch it or seize it or take it by force. Or it can be used passively to refer to that which has been seized or that which has been snatched. Booty. Pray, a treasure, something you possess that you hold on to tightly. Right? If you, if you have something that is yours and you hold on to it tightly and you cling to it, then, then that's harpogmos in the Greek. So it can be used in two ways. Now if it's something, if it refers to something that I do not have, then the meaning is I take it by force. I snatch it or I take it. I thieve it. I rob it. That's why the King James says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, because the word can mean that. But a better translation is he did not regard his equality with God a thing to be what? Grasped or held onto at all costs. Because here's the key, friends. Was the Apostle Paul speaking of Jesus taking something that did not belong to him and that he did not have? Or was the Apostle Paul speaking of something that he possessed by virtue of the fact that he existed in the form of God? The Apostle Paul is speaking of something that Christ had. He existed in the form of God. He had equality with God. So, he did not regard that equality with God as something to be held onto and grasped and clung to at all costs with greed. That's the idea. Now, why is this important? Because the Jehovah's Witness will come to your door, hopefully this week if you're lucky. I always love it when the mission field comes to our door. Jehovah's Witness comes to your door this week. I want you to drop them into Philippians chapter 2 and see what they do with it. And you know what they'll do with it? 
You'll say to them, he existed in the form of God and he did not regard his equality with God as a thing to be held on to at all costs. And the Jehovah's Witness will see, say, isn't that a wonderful expression of the humility of Jesus Christ? That he did not exist in the form of God and unlike Satan, he did not think equality with God was something that he wanted to take for himself. Do you notice the difference? Because the Jehovah's Witness says how humble Christ was. He's different than Satan. Satan said, I will exalt my throne above the heavens. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will. Jesus wasn't like that, the Jehovah's Witness says. The Jehovah's Witness says Jesus instead saw that God's glory and His majesty and said, I don't want to take that. I'm not going to rob that from God. How humble He was. Is that what Paul's saying? That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is just the opposite. He had that. He had that equality. He had all of the position, all of the power, all of the attributes, the majesty, the glory, the comforts, the conveniences, everything that went with the form of God and His equality with God. And He did not regard those things as something to be held onto and used for His own advantage. As something that He could get something out of. Instead, He willingly gave up and emptied Himself in order that He might come down here and die for Adam's helpless race. Now, just in case you're not here next week, do not for a minute, there's a little preview of next week, don't for a minute think that when he emptied himself, he became not God. It's not what Paul's saying. Don't get confused here. When he emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his deity. What did he empty himself of? We'll look at that next week. But don't think that it was his deity. It wasn't. So, friends, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. You say, what, what do we draw from all of this? Okay, he didn't regard his equality with God as something to be grasped or held onto at all costs. So what does that mean for us? Here's how the Lord Jesus is such a stellar example for you and I. Friends, he existed in the form of God. He had equality with God. But the Apostle Paul says he didn't view that as something to be used for his own advantage. He didn't view that as something to be held onto. Instead of looking at his position, his glory, and his nature and seeing it as something by which he could gain, he saw all of that as a position from which he could give. Do you see the difference? He didn't view his Godhead as fullness. He viewed it as something that he could empty himself and pour himself out for other people. So here's how he's an example for us. He is an example for us in that you and I are to have the same mind that he had, and we are not to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. He had every reason to pursue his own self-interest, but he didn't. Could he have used his deity, could he have used his equality with God as a platform or as something to advance his own cause and his own interest? Could he have done that? He could have done that. He had every right to do that. But what did he do instead? Did he do that? No, he emptied himself. He didn't view his equality with God as something to be used for his own benefit. So now I ask you the hard question. And here it is. How do you view your position? How do you view your possessions? How do you view your authority? How do you view your, your influence and that which God has entrusted to your care? So many of us, when we're climbing the corporate ladder or we get to a certain position, we begin to think to ourselves, well, hey, I'm now the head of my department. I don't wash sinks anymore. I'm now the head of my department. I don't answer phones anymore. I don't clean the employee bathroom. Really, why is that? Is that below you, oh great one? Is that below you? You're too good for that? You're the owner of the company now, so now that you're the owner of the company or you're the head of the department or you're the, 
the chief cheese, all of a sudden you, you don't have to lower yourself, you don't have to humble yourself, you don't have to serve other people anymore? Is that how you view your position? Oh, once I get to this position, I'm not going to be doing the menial work anymore. Why is that? Do you know why God gives you a position? Do you know why God gives you a, a headship or a leadership role or a position of authority? Do you know why He does that? He does that in order that you might serve other people through it. That's why He does that. How do you view it? Yeah, I don't do dishes. I'm the man of the house. I don't cook. I don't clean. I don't do laundry. I don't do child care. No, that's my wife's job. I don't, I don't snow blow the driveway. She knows how to start that. I don't mow the lawn. She knows how to start the lawn mower. I don't shovel the walk. I don't do child care. I don't clean. Yeah, you're just an arrogant, unchristlike jerk is what you are. You know why God has made you the head of your home? So you can serve your wife and children. That's why. So you can serve your wife and children. And if you refuse to do that, men, you are abusing your headship role, not using it. That's it. That's the bottom line. If you're the boss, if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you're the head of a ministry, if you're the head of a department, if you're a president, a principal, a civic leader, a school teacher, this applies to all of us. No matter what role we have, no matter what position we have, the reason God gives that to us is that we might use it to serve other people. So now I ask you this. Take an inventory. What is it that God has entrusted to your care? What is your position? What is your power? What is your authority? What is your exalted status? At work or in the home? I don't have an exalted status in the home. At work, in the home, in the church, amongst other people, at the Bible study that you lead, at the office, what is your position? What is it that God has entrusted to your care? And then you answer this question. How am I using that? How am I using that? Now, it may be that you don't ever have to clean bathrooms. Somebody else might do that. Somebody else's job. And if you do it, you take a job away from somebody else. It may be that you never are called on to do any other menial tasks. Just You have certain menial tasks and they're yours to do and you do them. But the question is not whether you're ever called on to do those things. The question is when you're called on to do those things, how do you view them? And how do you view yourself? Where does humility begin? Right up here. How do I regard myself? And do I think of myself more highly than others? And am I considering the interests of others ahead of myself? And am I looking at others as more important than myself? What have you been given by God? And how are you using it? And the answer to that question, those two questions, determines whether or not you have the mind of Christ. That's it. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the humility that our Lord demonstrated that took Him to the cross, that He did not regard His own interests as that to be seized upon, to be grasped, and to be clung to. We thank You for that humility of mind which was first evidenced in Him. Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard that position, His equality with God, something to be held onto at cost to us, but that He came, He served, He sacrificed, and He gave His life. God, give us the grace as your people to model that type of humility. We need you by your grace to change our hearts and to make us more like Christ, that we might have that same attitude in us that he demonstrated. And thus we would be disciples and servants of Christ and honor and glorify you with our lives and with all of the talents and the treasures that you have given to us. We ask this in his name, for his sake and for his glory. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.